Everyone knows the trope. Two young lovers slip away to get it on in the woods, and the next morning their friends find their body parts strewn about. The work of a madman. The warning? Sex is dangerous, and you will be punished for it. But what if the monster was not part of a lurid horror script, but was actually real? What if it struck so quickly and violently that the lovers had no hope of escape? What if the monster was so silent and invisible that not a single clue was left behind? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a product of the era of slasher films that had us all believing that sexually active camp counselors were constantly getting murdered out in the woods every summer. But don't worry, if you're a virgin, you'll most likely survive, but not without a hell of a fight and a lot of PTSD. We're all doomed, I guess, so you might as well live a little before you die. Everything is trying to kill you in Australia is perhaps not the country's favorite tourism slogan, but sometimes it sure can seem true. From spiders to sharks to crocodiles, snakes, kangaroos, and even python poop. Not to mention pythons. The crocodile Dundee walkabout that tourists flock to Australia for would be better termed a fucking run for your life. But that probably wouldn't bring in as many tourist dollars. Down Under's PR problems aside, today's story is about two people that the great wilds of Australia succeeded in killing. At 7.45 a.m. on January 1st, 1963, teenagers Mike McCormick and Dennis Weeway were out looking for golf balls at the Chatswood Golf Course along the Lane Cove River in a suburb outside Sydney when they came across a man lying face down near the riverbank. Assuming the man was just drunk and passed out, the teens moved on. This reminds me of the people who came across the Somerton man dead on the beach in Adelaide decades earlier. One has to wonder how many Australians just pass out in public places that passersby don't think to check on them. A person curled up on a bench is passed out. A person lying face down in the dirt spread eagle, as was the case here, is not passed out. He is dead. About an hour later, the teens realized this when they came back through the area and the man was still lying there. As the boys approached, they saw the man's skin had a blue tint to it and blood had trickled from his nose. Dennis Weeway said, I think he's dead. The boys ran to tell golf course manager Jeffrey Keith Little what they'd found. Little went to investigate and quickly confirmed that yes, this was a dead person. He called the police and Sergeant Arthur Andrews immediately headed to the scene. Sergeant Andrews quickly noticed that the man was naked from the waist down, which the kids and manager had missed, probably because the man's suit was laid neatly on top of him as if he were still wearing it. Andrews removed the suit and found an old carpet remnant covering a white shirt, a tie, and socks. His underwear were missing and his shoes were partially covered in mud. When he turned the body over, Andrews could see no obvious signs of violence. After going through the man's belongings, Andrews was able to identify him as 38-year-old Dr. Gilbert S. Bogle of Turamura, a suburb of Sydney. 
Andrews called for backup, and as the team scoured the area for clues, they discovered another body. This one was female. She was lying on her back about 13 yards away from the man with her dress open and off her shoulders and her skirt bunched up around her waist. She was also not wearing underwear, though a pair of men's underwear were found at her ankles and her bra was pulled down, exposing her breasts. Her bare feet were muddy and there was a small abrasion on her nose. Her body was partially covered with cardboard and newspaper. Though the woman was dead, her body was still warm and rigor mortis had not yet set in as it had with Dr. Bogle. She was identified as 29-year-old Mrs. Margaret Chandler. So Margaret was married, as evidenced by the Mrs., but not to the man she was found near, judging from their different last names. It didn't take Sherlock Holmes to surmise that the pair had been having sex when they were killed. But by whom? And why? And also, how? Police hoped answers would reveal themselves once they learned more about the victims. Gilbert Stanley Bogle was born in New Zealand in 1924. He had three academic degrees, culminating in a PhD in physics, and was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship in 1946. He'd spent five years at Oxford studying the atomic structure of crystals, which is probably less colorful than it sounds. He returned to New Zealand and spent four years lecturing on physics at Otago University in Dunedin, New Zealand. According to his colleagues, Bogle was well-liked. In 1956, Bogle married Vivian Rich and the couple moved to Sydney, Australia, where he joined the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, or CICERO, as the principal research officer in the physics department at the National Standards Laboratory. By 1863, Bogle and his wife had four children. Bogle was scheduled to start a two-year position that February at the Bell Telephone Company in the United States. There isn't much information about Margaret to be found. Correction, there is practically no information about her because, as we all know, women don't matter. Any mention of her online points back to Bogle. Margaret Chandler essentially became a footnote in a man's life. The little we do know is that Margaret Morfitt was born in 1934 in New South Wales, Australia, and had worked as a nurse before marrying Geoffrey Chandler in 1957. The couple had two children, and Margaret was a stay-at-home mother. Bogle, we knew, was brilliant, successful, popular, spoke several languages, was an accomplished musician, and apparently didn't have a single enemy. Though, if the crime scene told investigators anything, it was that he did have at least one dalliance outside his marriage. So perhaps there'd been an enemy after all. A jealous spouse, perhaps? As it turns out, Margaret's husband, Jeffrey, worked at Cicero and was a colleague of Dr. Bogle's. The Bogle's and the Chandler's met for the first time at a Christmas party just 11 days before Gilbert and Margaret were found dead. After the deaths, Jeffrey Chandler said, They struck up acquaintanceship at the Mary Bridge party. She was flattered by his attentions, and he was attracted to her because she was a very pretty and lovely, lovely lady. And then, the night before they were found dead, they attended a small New Year's Eve party. Of that, Chandler said, I think the reason why we got the invitation was because of Gibbs' attraction to Margaret, or his desire to see her again. Chandler claims to have said to Margaret, 
If you want to have Gib as a lover, if it would make you happy, you do it. Record scratch sound. Say what now? The Chandlers, it turned out, liked to decorate their home with pineapples, if you know what I mean. Their front door swung, if you catch my drift. They were monogamish, if you pick up what I'm putting down. They were swingers. According to a thoroughly researched blog slash website curated by Russell Brown dedicated to this case called Bogle and Chandler, Margaret and Jeffrey Chandler subscribed to the Push Movement, a left-wing political movement started by Sidney Push, which, quote, encouraged liberal views on sex, end quote. Brown writes, quote, the Chandlers had ideas about marriage that were considered quite unusual in 1962. So long as their marriage was a happy one, and it was, there was no reason why each should not have partners outside the relationship. Jeffrey Chandler had affairs and, not being a hypocrite, considered Margaret free to do the same, end quote. Chandler would later say people were free. Instead of being constrained by conventional morality and conventional religion and conventional society, you had freedom to indulge whatever you liked. If you wanted to have sex with somebody who was mutually attractive, then you did it. In fact, Jeffrey's views were so liberal, he considered the New Year's Eve party to be way too square for his taste. He showed up wearing a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops, even though he knew it was a formal event. He said, The Ken Nash party was pretentious and iffy, so we sort of made this arrangement. If Margaret wanted to continue the evening with Gibb, then that was fine and then I would take myself off to Buckley's party, which was much more to my liking. It probably didn't hurt that the woman Jeffrey was sleeping with would be at the Buckley's party. Listen, I'm all for this. If you have the energy slash time to deal with more than one partner and everyone is on board, you have my blessing. By the powers vested in me, by me. Gilbert Bogle arrived stag at the New Year's Eve party around 9 p.m. It's unclear whether Bogle and his wife were open with their marriage, but Vivian had stayed home that night with the couple's young baby. The Chandlers showed up around 9.30, Jeffrey in his flip-flops and Margaret in a red floral print dress. At 11.30, Jeffrey left the party to buy a pack of cigarettes and to go to the other party where his side piece would be. At midnight, after the guests had sung Old Lang Syne, the hosts noticed that Jeffrey Chandler was gone. When they went looking for him, they instead found his wife and Gilbert Bogle standing close together outside, gazing at each other. Ken Nash, one half of the host couple, turned off the outside light, he said in puckish humor, and the pair quickly came inside. Meanwhile, Jeffrey had made it to the other party, found his lover Pamela Logan, and the pair left together, though no one at the party seemed to notice they'd left. They went in separate cars back to Pam's house. Jeffrey drove a very distinct 1924 silver Vauxhall, an antique car that was impossible to miss. He stayed at Pam's for a half an hour, so clearly the sex wasn't that good and then made his way back to the Nash party where he left his wife and Gib to canoodle. Apparently, he arrived at the Nash's around 2.30, but there isn't any account of any goings-on between 2.30 and 3.45 a.m. when he left. At any rate, Gib left around 4.20 in the morning, and Margaret followed about five minutes later. 
It seems they were trying to give the impression that they left separately. Jeffrey later told police, quote, he assumed his wife and Dr. Bogle would drive to the privacy of the Chandler home in Croydon, some 25 minutes away. Instead, the couple drove to Lane Cove River, a journey of only six minutes, end quote. They really could not wait to get it on. Meanwhile, Jeffrey decided to go back to Pam's house, which apparently took longer than usual because of an accident on Sydney Harbor Bridge. This would mean he was on the bridge on or around 4.35 a.m. Pam was asleep when he got there, but for some reason, Jeffrey convinced her to go with him to pick up his children who had stayed the night with their grandparents. I swear, between the multiple partners, the party hopping, and the errands at dawn, these people have more energy than I did at 16 years old. I'm exhausted just reading about it. Jeffrey and Pam climbed into his 1924 Vauxhall. At about 4.50 a.m., a neighbor saw them in the car and commented that Jeffrey was with a woman who was definitely not his wife. Another witness said he saw them in the car on his way to church as they drove by around 4.55 a.m. They picked up the kids, and Jeffrey, Pam, and the Chandler children arrived back at Pam's place at around 6.30 a.m. And they all went inside and hung out? Jeffrey had told his wife that she and Gib could have the house until 10 a.m., so he kept good on his word and brought his children to his lover's house to chill for a few hours. By 10, the children were like, uh, can we, like, go home? So they did. Margaret wasn't there. Jeffrey went to sleep because who the hell could even still be awake after a night like that? I don't know what the kids did. Watched Captain Kangaroo and played with Slinkies, I guess. And then, at 1 p.m., Jeffrey was awoken by a knock on the front door. It was the police. Jeffrey's first thought must have been that Gilbert Bogle killed his wife. That would be the obvious conclusion, until he heard that Gibb was also dead. Maybe his thoughts flew to murder-suicide, until he learned about the way the bodies were found. Gibbs with a piece of old carpet underneath his suit, which had been carefully placed over his sprawled-out body, and Margaret's covered in newspaper and cardboard. Clearly someone else had been there. I don't know if the general public knew then that the spouse is almost always the one who done it, so perhaps Jeffrey Chandler was unaware that he was the prime suspect. Police would have to figure out who or what killed Margaret Chandler and Gilbert Bogle. And how. While both victims had been physically ill just before they died, there was no sign of violence. No struggle. Vivian Mahoney, the chief toxicologist, was quoted in a documentary on this case saying, It could only be one thing. Put it this way. Something entered those two bodies. They had to have consumed something, inhaled something, or absorbed something through the skin. Poison. Everyone agreed that neither Margaret nor Gibb were the type of people who would kill themselves, so murder-suicide and double-suicide were ruled out. If they had killed themselves in some kind of lover's pact or whatever, why would they have done it mid-copulation? You'd think they would probably not want people to find their bodies half-dressed. Sure, they were technically having sex in a public place, but they weren't exhibitionists with suicidal ideation. They must have either accidentally ingested something or they were intentionally poisoned. 
If Jeffrey Chandler didn't know right away he was the top suspect, he certainly caught on when they brought him down to the morgue to view his wife's body. He was quoted as saying, I was summoned down to the old morgue. I couldn't possibly have conceived of a more callous way in which she was presented. And they all arranged themselves to watch my every little action, to see whether I was going to break down, whether I was going to confess. Police thought Jeffrey's response to his wife's death was suspicious. It was too blasé, according to Ronald Rudgley, one of the lead detectives on the case. Of course, if Jeffrey had even the slightest hint that he was suspected, he was probably doing everything he could to seem innocent, and perhaps that came off as disinterested? Police were breathing down Jeffrey's neck. They'd learned about the extramarital relationships between the couples and couldn't fathom a world in which people wouldn't treat their loved ones like possessions. Obviously, Jeffrey was the jealous husband who, in a fit of rage, murdered his wife and her lover. His wife and her lover for whom he had literally left his house free for the night. For them to have sex. His wife and her lover for whom he had gone to a party he had no interest in just so they could meet up. It made no sense. Not to mention Jeffrey's pretty rock-hard alibi that he was stooping Pamela Logan and or stuck in traffic on the bridge on his way to stoop Pamela Logan when the other pair likely met whatever fate it was they met. And not only that, but someone who snaps and kills two people in a murderous rage usually doesn't cover their tracks so well that they don't leave a single clue. Surely, if Jeffrey Chandler was responsible, police would have found evidence that he'd bought poison, at least. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Jeffrey Chandler wasn't some James Bond-style villain. Ah, Mr. Bogle, I have caught you sleeping with my wife, the one I absolutely told you you could sleep with. The one I left my house empty for so you could sleep with her. But you see, it was all a trap. And my assistant has already poisoned you while you are listening to me. And because I am so respectful, I will cover your nudie booty once you are dead. (laughs) I doubt it. 24 hours after the bodies were discovered, the head of New South Wales Division of Forensic Medicine, Dr. John Liang, and two others conducted an autopsy and found that both Margaret and Gibb died of the same thing. Quote, acute cardiac failure associated with anoxia and pulmonary edema. And because of the less developed state of rigor mortis in Margaret's body, they determined that she likely died an hour or two later than Gibb. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. But they still couldn't find any entry point for poison, to say nothing of the poison itself. There was no trace of any kind of poison in their systems. And it wasn't for lack of trying. The New South Wales investigators brought in help from all over the world and tested for every possible poison they could think of. According to the Bogle Chandler blog, the team, quote, examined specimens of the couple's brains, hearts, livers, spleens, kidneys, and blood. He used ultraviolet and infrared rays and radiation monitors to seek ionizing influences. Hair was tested for traces of indestructible arsenic. They also examined tissues for traces of strychnine, asinite, atrophine, carbolic acid, and phenyl, cocaine, 
henbane or mountain hemp, mercury, nicotine, opium, phosphorus, santonine, poisoned mushrooms and almonds, the venom of Queensland's conefish, and dorada seeds, the food poison of thugs of Western India. End quote. They even scoured the bottom of the river for syringes and bottles of poison and searched the area for venomous spiders, even though there was no evidence of spider bites on either victim. Also, a further examination was done to ensure their eardrums were intact, which means that something can crawl into your ear, puncture your eardrum, and then kill you. That's not what happened here. I'm just saying that the fact that they examined for it means it's possible. Listen, at this point, I would say don't leave the house without being wrapped head to toe in bubble wrap. But now I'm just going to say don't leave the house, period. Police searched the Chandler, Bogle, and Logan homes and found nothing to connect back to the deaths. Police even went to the Nash's home, where the couple had been at the party just before they died, to search for any evidence of poison or even contaminated food, and found nothing. Police questioned anyone they could think of, including residents near the golf course, and kept coming back empty-handed, until they finally uncovered two possible leads. One was a man who'd arrived at the golf course area around 4 o'clock on the morning in question and admitted under questioning to be a voyeur. Somehow, the presence of this man prompted Gibb to move his car, which was parked near the golf course. The man said when he walked by a half hour later after passing through the first time, the car was empty and he didn't see the couple and kept going. Police ruled him out as a murder suspect and also didn't think it likely that he was the one to cover their bodies afterward either, given that he only had one arm, and it would have been a fairly laborious task. And then there was a greyhound trainer, Eddie Batiste, who often used the course to illegally train his dogs. Eddie was there the morning Margaret and Gibb died, but he insisted he used a different walking path and never saw the pair. Batiste's children, however, believed that he may have indeed been the one to cover the two bodies. He was apparently very prudish and detested the sight of naked flesh, and he returned home that morning extremely anxious and upset. He never admitted it, but it was mentioned in his obituary in Greyhound magazine in 1977, which means he either confided in someone or the dog magazine took it upon themselves to publish an unsubstantiated rumor in his obituary. In May of 1963, after a two-week inquest with 50 witnesses, 63 exhibits, and 762 pages of testimony, according to the Sydney Morning Herald in 2006, coroner J.J. Loomis concluded, It gives me no satisfaction to sit here and tell you that all we know about this is that two people died from acute circulatory failure, the cause of which is unknown. No one was charged in the deaths, and the only conclusion was that Margaret Chandler and Gilbert Bogle died of natural causes. What the causes were, however, no one could say. Which is not to say there wasn't plenty of speculation, thanks in part to two newspapers duking it out over who could print the more scandalous story. The mysterious and evidently gruesome deaths of a couple who were married but not to each other, apparently making love in the dirt in the early morning hours, gripped 
the deeply conservative society of Sydney. That, driven by a war between two local tabloids, and the coverage of the deaths was relentless. Gerald Stone of The Mirror said, This was a sensational crime by any standard, but it happened to break at a time when Sydney was in the midst of a vicious war between two tabloid afternoon newspapers, The Sun and The Mirror. They were like two professional wrestlers trying to appeal to the readers. And so it was, really then, it was all stops out. Because of the nature of the deaths and the fact that Gibb was a scientist, people assumed his work was what got him killed. Apparently, he had done some, quote, groundbreaking research on low-noise microwave receivers set to revolutionize radio astronomy, end quote. As Gerald Stone of The Mirror put it, Of course, a story like this attracts a lot of rumor-mongering, and when you don't know, you kind of make it up. In those days, which was the height of the Cold War, and worried about the atomic bomb and everything else, so stories about a death ray or a secret nuclear thing or working for the CIA, all of these things were grist for the mill. And according to the piece in the Sydney Herald, quote, he was due to leave the Cicero in a few weeks to work in the U.S. with Bell Laboratories, which was working on highly secret defense contracts. Vogel had been cleared by ASIO for top-secret work, and the FBI had given him the once-over before he got the Bell job. Some reports over the years suggested Vogel was bumped off by the KGB to stop his research, or that the CIA killed him as he was a double agent flogging secrets to the Soviets." End quote. Of course, once again, there was never any trace of poison. And sure, the KGB has been known to poison people, but this just doesn't seem on brand. Decades went by, and in 1996, tests were run on Margaret and Gibbs tissue samples that suggested the presence of LSD. And let me tell you, if LSD can last more than 30 years in the body, how much are my organs tripping right now? Maybe that explains why I always feel so weird. Anyway, for a minute, everyone was like, they OD'd on acid. But then a second test was run that came back negative. And besides, it's pretty much an established fact that you can't OD on LSD. You can trip so hard you think you're a butterfly and jump out a window, but you can't OD on it, as far as I know. Another tabloid theory was that an ex of Gibbs named Margaret Fowler was the killer. Fowler was another colleague from Cicero who Gibb had broken up with three months before his death because she was possessive and jealous. It's kind of a prerequisite for polyamory that you can't be possessive and jealous. Some people claim to have seen her lurking around outside the Nash's New Year's Eve party. According to the Sydney Herald piece, quote, she was called to give evidence at the coroner's inquiry, but was mysteriously discharged after just a few seconds in the stand. She has since died, end quote. I have no idea what that means, and I wish to Peter, Paul, and Mary I did. Because what does it take to be mysteriously discharged after just a few seconds on the stand? Like, what happened? Please state your name for the record. Margaret Fowl. Thank you, Your Honor. No further questions. And then, in 2006, the Australian Broadcasting Company's documentary Who Killed Gilbert Bogle and Margaret Chandler introduced an interesting new theory. 
Apparently, the river the pair had chosen to have sex near was known to have high levels of hydrogen sulfide. In the 1940s, residents in the area began complaining of a noxious smell and that, quote, their bath fittings and paintwork were discoloring. Increasingly, they suffered nausea and unexplained illnesses. Some reported finding their children at night gasping for breath, end quote. The government brought in maritime scientist Maurice Fry, who did a year-long study of the water and found extraordinarily high levels of hydrogen sulfide exploding from the bottom of the river. When these explosions happened, there was a stench of rotten eggs and the fish would die or desperately try to escape the waters. The culprit was a factory that had been dumping its waste into the water for 60 years. The factory was ordered to stop dumping its waste into the river because, duh. But there was also a huge sewer pipe that ran under the river which dumped its overflow into the river. Forensic toxicologist Thomas Milby told the documentary, Hydrogen sulfide gas is potentially deadly, almost as toxic as cyanide gas. Most of us can pick up the smell of hydrogen sulfide at extremely low concentrations of way less than a part per million. It isn't really toxic, it's annoying because it doesn't smell very good. But it doesn't take any serious toxicity on until it reaches about 50 to 100 parts per million. But if it gets much higher than that, and if it gets into the 200 or 300 parts per million, then it begins to take an effect on the brain. At about 750 parts per million, you're in danger of dying, and most people do. Milby concluded that Margaret and Bogle must have picked the most toxic part of the riverbank on which to have their dalliance, and that both of them probably smelled the gas, which smells like farts, BTW, but at such high levels, they would have essentially been nose-blind to it pretty quickly, which I imagine would have made for a pretty awkward couple of moments. Indeed, there was evidence of hydrogen sulfide all over the area on the day in question. And both the lovers' blood had been a slightly off-color purple, which supported the theory of hydrogen sulfide poisoning. Milby argued that hydrogen sulfide could be the only culprit for the discoloration of the blood. He described the likely last few moments of the couple's lives this way. I think they would have realized pretty fast that something was wrong. They would become disoriented and they might try to get out and stumbled backwards. And they can do all sorts of things that you can conceive of someone who is semi-unconscious, actually. If the concentration is high enough of hydrogen sulfide in the atmosphere, when it gets into the blood, it immediately shuts off the ability of the brain to use oxygen, even though there's plenty of oxygen around. It's like putting a plastic bag over the brain. And remember that Margaret died at least an hour after Gibb, which means she probably suffered, slowly running out of oxygen, that entire time. One can only hope she was rendered unconscious early on. How absolutely horrific. At the time of their deaths, hydrogen sulfide is not something investigators would have thought to test for, and everyone was focused on finding a poison that the couple would have ingested earlier, as usually poison takes time to take effect. 
But it turns out there was fresh semen on the inside of Gibbs' coat, suggesting that the pair was perfectly fine when they got to the area and began getting frisky. Worst of all, the investigators knew about the semen but kept it a secret to protect public morality. Jesus Christ. They waited a full 15 months to tell chief toxicologist Mahoney about it. She later said, I'm sort of a little annoyed that they brought in a vial to me at that time because it points me in a totally different direction. I'm annoyed that I spent a lot of time on poisons that didn't fit the circumstances. 42 years on, I feel this Bogle and Chandler case could have been solved within weeks had there been cooperation between the three departments, the police, the pathology that did the autopsy, and myself at the government analysts. It also turns out there were two witnesses who, if they'd come forward right away, could also have saved investigators a lot of time. After the ABC documentary was released, a therapist came forward saying a patient confessed in session only two years after the deaths occurred that she'd seen Margaret and Gilbert die. She and her girlfriend had gone to the riverbank after a New Year's Eve party and one of them had left their purse. They retraced their steps looking for it, discovered Margaret and Gib having sex, and stooped down in the bushes to watch. The therapist recalled it this way. At some point, the woman said loudly, why have you stopped? He said nothing and she asked him to keep on going. Then suddenly the woman grabbed her throat and made a strangling noise and got up and staggered off. After a few minutes, he rolled over and moved some short distance and my memory suggests she said he moved away from the water and up the slope. They waited a little while till there was no noise to look for the purse. They smelled some rotten egg gas, but it seemed to go away as they moved closer to the edge of the water. As they searched, they discussed why the couple had acted so strangely and just assumed they'd been on drugs or something. Wow. Just once again, Australia, I love you. But like, what the fuck with seeing people dead or dying and not doing anything about it? Listen, this is a rhetorical question because I know that we Americans are great at looking the other way when people are suffering. It's just this is wild. And why these people didn't come forward sooner, who knows? Like, they didn't have to admit they were watching them have sex. They could have just come forward at any time and said they were looking for their purse, saw the couple, and left. There are experts who disagree with the hydrogen sulfide theory, but as far as I can tell, no one has come up with anything better. And as far as this expert is concerned, the hydrogen sulfide theory holds water. And that water is filled with toxic levels of fart-smelling gas. Which, again, just goes to prove two things. One, Australia is trying to kill you. And two, don't go outside. Have as much sex as you want, safely, obviously, and indoors, because it's not the sex that's going to kill you. It's the outside, stranger. It's always the outside. Next time on Strange and Unexplained... I can't imagine a worse nightmare than losing a child in your family home as it burns to the ground. Except maybe losing five of your children in your family home as it burns to the ground. 
The Missing Solder Children. Can't get enough Strange and Unexplained? Join us over on Patreon for three bonus episodes a month for just $5. Or for $7, you get three bonus episodes and all the regular episodes ad-free. Patreon.com slash Strange and Unexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, and Jordan Kai Burnett. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a quick sentence really helps the show out a lot. If you don't like our show, you can leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts. The name of the podcast is Flyover Conservatives. <laughs>